think it's Mario Brothers. <laughs> Do I win the prize? Super Mario Brothers, yes. Oh, so close. Is there a difference? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Craig Mackling, Brett McGarry. I am not from the video game generation. I guess I sort of am, just chose not to participate overly. Played Pac-Man in the arcade when I wasn't playing pinball. But the whole home arcade and the home video games, I never really got into seriously, except for maybe a three-month chunk of my life where I was into Madden 2000. Okay. And that's about it. But I did come across this article about Adam Adair, Camadair of Game Quitters. I don't know where I got Adam from, just off the top of my head. Camadair, Game Quitters. And it caught my attention, Brett, because... Well, it intrigued me to imagine that someone was addicted to the point, addicted to video games, that they would start an organization like this, and also realizing, I think this is way more real a thing than many of us might imagine. He's 28 years old. He now lives in San Diego. This week, he's in his hometown of Calgary. That's where we caught up with him. And we started by asking him about the extent he would go to to hide his addiction from his family. You know, I, I think the one that always speaks to me is just pretending to have jobs. Uh, that's the one looking back that I'm always like, wow, that really is pretty intense. Uh, you know, so my dad used to drop me off at a restaurant where he thought I had a job. And as soon as he drove off, I'd walk across the street, catch the bus back home, and I would sneak into my window and go to sleep. And, you know, my mom was getting ready for work, so that's why I had to sneak in through my window. But that's the one that really sticks to me is, you know, when I'm going to the extent of pretending to have jobs and deceiving my family, you know, that's probably a problem. I mean, that's the length to which drug addicts, uh, alcoholics, gambling addicts go to hide their problems from their families. There's absolutely zero difference there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we get so caught up in comparing one addiction to another instead of just really looking at, you know, how is this affecting your life? Is it having an impact? And are you looking to to improve it? And if you are, then great, let's help you. And if you're not, then, you know, nothing we do is going to help you anyway. So I think so often we just get into a comparison game and video game addiction isn't real or, you know, it's it's not worse than alcohol or whatever. And none of that, in my opinion, really matters when it comes to a case-by-case basis of actually being able to help someone. Talk about how this started. Did your life revolve around uh, video games? Uh, Tell us how this all came to fruition. So at first, you know, I'm a fairly normal Canadian kid. I went to school, I played hockey, and then I'd go home and play video games. And at first it was, it was all good. It was kind of a way for me to bond with, you know, friends and bond with my cousin, especially But over the course of time, especially in the eighth grade, when I began to experience a lot of bullying, that's when things went from just being something normal to being an escape. And the escape ended up, you know, I actually dropped out of high school, never graduated. And while all my friends were going off to college, I was at home living in my parents' basement playing video games up to 16 hours a day. Now, I was also super depressed. And as much as gaming allowed me to escape from dealing with my depression, it didn't actually fix it. So I got to a point where I wrote a suicide note. And that's the night when I really started to realize I need to make a change. How old were you at this time, Cam, when you made this decision? I was, I think I was 18, um, 18, maybe, maybe 19 at that point. And what games were you playing at this time? So my career around gaming really evolved around three different games. The first was StarCraft. The second was Counter-Strike 1.6. And the third was World of Warcraft. So at the time that I was 
you know, rising that suicide note for the previous year and a half, I'd been playing world of Warcraft, which is really a whole different world where I could get lost in that all day and not have to think about anything else. Um, after I quit for two years, I was, I was able to quit cold Turkey and then I relapsed. And when I relapsed, I relapsed into playing Starcraft. So what do you think caused your depression? Was it situational? Is it something that is chemical with you or did your video game addiction create some situational depression? What do you think came first? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm not too sure. I think the bullying definitely had a very big impact on me because it hurt my self-esteem a lot. And as my self-esteem was hurt a lot, I no longer really cared for myself. And when you don't care about yourself, you know, it's pretty easy to feel depressed. I think, you know, there's a case to be said that, you know, I was spending up to 16 hours a day sitting in, in a room isolated by myself. That's a recipe for depression. So I think it was a combination of many different factors, uh, but the bullying was really what began to, to kick that into high gear. So in a way, because you wanted to escape the real world, this virtual world sort of became your reality. Absolutely. And it was a genuine reality. And I think that's an important point for anybody listening is, you know, a common thing you'll hear from parents is those aren't your real friends. You know, you're playing with friends online, but those aren't your real friends, but they are your real friends. And, you know, one of the, the difficulties that people in my community have when they go to quit are kind of three main issues. The first is, what else will I do with my time? They actually don't even know what else they'll do with their time other than gaming. The second is, I'm going to lose all my friends. And for someone of any age, losing your friends is a very difficult experience. And the third is, you know, moving on from something incredibly meaningful to them. It's creating a void. And they feel nostalgic. You know, gaming might have been something they've done since they were two, three, four, five years old. And they might be 30 years old today. And gaming is the central thing they've done throughout their whole life. Now, there are going to be people of a certain age not necessarily understanding the whole idea of video game world being your friends. Because I know when I played video games, that was a very solitary thing other than who might have been with you in the room. But technology has changed to the point now where you're playing these games virtually with people all around the world. Absolutely. And our community at Game Quitters is a reflection of that. We have 20,000 members a month in 77 countries around the world. Imagine us trying to reach 77 countries around the world without technology. Technology has allowed that, but more so it's just a reflection of how many people around the world are connected online and connected through playing video games. So with Game Quitters, you're not trying to start a war on video games, right? The complete opposite. I actually believe that I'm actually trying to defend gaming. And the reason is because let's say 10% of people who play video games actually have a problem. That 10%, I want to be able to help them and be able to give them the best support possible and to truly, I believe they deserve help. Now, the 90% of people who play, I believe they should be able to game in peace. And society has stigmatized and shamed gaming and gaming communities so much that it's actually caused more of the problem. You know, when we tell gamers that they're lazy, wasting their potential, why do you play these video games? Those aren't your real friends. That's only causing a disconnect between the person saying that and the gamer, which then is only perpetuating the fact that that gamer then feels accepted online. He feels like his community online is someone who understands him. So all that shame, all that stigma is only perpetuating his desire to go and play 
because that's where he feels accepted. So I think we need to shift the conversation around video game addiction, especially in just the gaming community. Some people play and they're fine. Some people don't, and we need to be able to help them. But we don't need to debate if it's one or the other because both can coexist. Cam Adair is a Calgary native. He's in Calgary this week, although he lives in San Diego. He's from something called Game Quitters. He's formed a community called Game Quitters. There is a website, GameQuitters.com. If you think you are addicted to video games, you are not alone. And we're going to continue our conversation that we had with Cam in a moment. And as well, for later to this afternoon, we want your feedback. So if you have any thoughts on video game or video game addictions, you can send them to us, brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. Did you ever play Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, Greg? I don't think I ever made it past the second guy. Uh, oh, uh, Von Kaiser. <laughs> That's exactly right. He had the bad, the really short haircut. He looked like the uh, Pillsbury, uh, what, Play-Doh, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the haircut set just on the top of his head. Anyway, yeah, uh, video games and me just never got along. I don't know if my thumbs weren't quick enough, but I would have loved to have seen you in action back in the day. I, uh, yeah, well, that's why I selected that music. I played Mike Tyson's Punch-Out for many, many, many hours. We were visiting earlier today, and we're playing the conversation for you right now with Cam Adair, the founder of Game Quitters. He joined us this afternoon or earlier today from his uh, former home in Calgary, Alberta, and we wanted to know from him, how do we start weaning ourselves off the video games? So number one is that this is about understanding why you do what you do. We all have a vice. We all have a crutch. We all have unhealthy habits in some way, shape, or form. It's just about understanding that whatever that is, it's fulfilling certain needs you have, and those are genuine needs you have. So for gaming, it was temporary escape, social connection, content measurable growth, and purpose. Now for me to move on from gaming, I had to find those needs in other activities. So today, you know, I surf, I go to yoga, I work out. I live in California. I travel. I have my own business. You know, I do all these different things that for me fulfill me much more than gaming ever did. So that's number one. Understand why you do what you do. And there's tons of more information on YouTube, on the Game Quiz channel. There's over 120 videos for free for people. So that's number one. Number two is I recommend taking a 90-day detox. Now, this has to do with what research shows around gaming and the brain. So gaming is hyper-stimulating, far more stimulating than what real life is. That's much more immersive than real life. And because of that, your brain gets used to that level of stimulation, which means that anything that's not reaching that level of stimulation, you find boring. And so if you're out there and you feel like, well, I game because everything else in life is boring, then that could be part of what's going on. So research suggests a 90-day detox, 90 days cold turkey from gaming, Use that time as an experiment to experience what life is like without gaming. And in the very least, even if you go back to gaming or gaming in moderation afterwards, you now have a reference point for what life is like without it. And I believe that there are many positive results from that of being able to limit your time more and moderate and have healthier habits. So I recommend that those two things. Number one, understand why you do what you do. What does gaming fulfill for you or what does any unhealthy habit fulfill for you? And to take a 90-day break, use that as an experiment to see, you know, what life is like without it. And in the very least, that will help you to moderate better. 
Cam, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times you live in California now. What led you to California, by the way? So originally I moved from the U.S. to, or I moved from Calgary to the U.S. in Boulder, Colorado. And the reason was I had a hard time finding a community of social entrepreneurs in Calgary like I could in places like Boulder. So Boulder has a very thriving millennial community of, of social entrepreneurs, people who want to you know, make a difference and make a dollar. And that's really what I'm passionate about, being able to help people and do it for a living. And that community eventually, I just kind of realized, was also in San Diego and the weather was better. So that's kind of what brought me there. And, you know, it was really just for me about following my heart and, and staying true to what was most exciting to me uh, in California ended up being that. Cam, how about your relationship with your parents? You mentioned that you're back in Calgary for a few days. Imagine that included some family time. Has there been some reparations required with your relationship with your family, with all the revelations of how things went down when you were younger? You know, my parents have always had my back, and I'm super fortunate in that way. My situation and my story would be very different otherwise. Uh, So I'm super blessed to have incredible parents who have always kind of stood by me and, and just believed in me and believed that, you know, all these challenges I was going through, I was going to overcome them and, you know, I was going to be all right. So I know today they're super proud of me. Before my TEDx talk in Boulder, I had to kind of pull them aside and say, hey, you remember those jobs that I had? Well, I didn't really have them. And, you know, I'm sorry about that. Uh, And they just kind of laughed because, you know, that would be something I, I would do when I was younger. So now we've spent a lot of time together and we have a great relationship and, and I'm super honored to to have parents like, like them. What did you do for money when they thought you had these jobs that you actually did not have? Well, I didn't need much money because I was living at home. Uh, I think I had about a $100 allowance a month. And so that was, you know, I used that for bus tickets and things like that. But I really didn't have much money and, and didn't really need much money because you know, I was living at home and, and they were kind of taking care of things. And, you know, I think that me being so public about my story, I've just come to realize over the last maybe month or so is, you know, I'm also sharing their story and that can be difficult. And the article that came out in the Toronto Star was actually the first time where they shared their side of the story. Um, but, you know, I believe that my parents did the best that they could. I believe most parents are doing the best that they can. And I think the more we can understand this issue and, and be able to speak about it openly without shame and stigma, the more we'll be able to help. You know, as a parent, if you were to talk to other parents about how your kid was having a problem with video games, you'd get a lot, lot of judgment from other parents. And I know my parents have shared that as well. So I think we just need to be able to have more open conversations from a place of non-judgment and from a place of, you know, how can we best support each other? Cam, why are we still so judgmental against video games? Because video games, as far as I understand, are one of the biggest, if not the biggest form of entertainment on earth. Yeah, I don't really understand it. I imagine part of it just had to do with a generation transition, you know, something that, you know, my generation being a millennial, it was central to our lives from the very beginning. And that wasn't the case with with other generations. I think it's just misunderstood. You know, a lot of people are gaming or, or they're on computers and they're doing really amazing things. And technology, you know, is central to our lives, but it can also do, it can connect us with each other all over the world. And that's really amazing. But I think it was just a generation thing. And I think it's misunderstood. Uh, And, you know, I always laugh when someone says a gamer is is lazy because 
how can someone who does something for 8, 10, 12 hours a day be lazy? How many people do you know that do the same in something else? There aren't very many people. So I actually believe gamers are some of the most dedicated, focused, ambitious, disciplined people I know in, in the world. It's just sometimes that may be channeled to, you know, checking out from life instead of really channeling all of those talents in the direction of being able to contribute to society. Gamequitters.com is the website. Cam Adair is the founder of Game Quitters. He's joining us now. And Cam, before we let you go, can parents be, and not to beat on parents that uh, maybe find themselves in the same situation as your parents did, but can parents be enablers as it pertains to video gaming? You know, we don't want to extend it to other addiction, but let's do that uh, hypothetically. Can, can we be enabling unconscientiously as parents? Absolutely. And I have the most compassion for parents in that situation because you love your kids and you want to best support them. And, you know, the answers to that aren't always clear. What I believe is is important and something that's in the control of each parent is to be the best role model they can. So, for example, I got an email from a 12-year-old named Caitlin, and she shared with me that her mom was always telling her to stop playing these silly games, but yet She watched her mom watch TV for eight hours a night, and she said, you know, what's the difference? And I think that's such a great example because, you know, I have empathy for the fact that parents come home from work and they're tired and they just want a break and they want to watch TV and their kid is, you know, wanting some engagement and it's easy to give them an iPad. But the consequences of that over time are are plenty. Um, But I believe more importantly, the more you can have a relationship with your kids, the more you can help them get out of the house and the more you can be a positive role model of, you know, pursuing your passions beyond just your kids, the more you'll set the tone for them to want to follow suit. And I think that's where any parent can begin. Cam, do you play video games anymore? I don't. I haven't played video games in about five years, maybe, maybe longer. Uh, I don't really count, but it's, uh, there's a community on Reddit called stop gaming. That's really awesome. And uh, they have a bad, so, I know it's something around that time, but the only game I play now is chess. Uh, chess for me has never been a problem. It's something I really enjoy, strategic. Uh, but, you know, I play five minutes here and there, and that's about it. I, I just prefer things like playing basketball or DJing or surfing or going to yoga, hanging out with friends. There's just so many things I, I prefer to do than, uh, than sit around playing video games. That is Cam Adair. He is a 28-year-old Calgary native. That's where we spoke to him today. He now lives in San Diego as the founder of Game Quitters. There's a website, gamequitters.com, talking about his video game addiction. And it you know, might there might be an urge to scoff at it, but it's very real like any other addiction. And Cam has formed this community to help people defeat their addictions and discover there are other things going on around them. And again, he's not declaring war on video games. He's just saying, hey, some of us have an unhealthy relationship with video games. And if you're one of them, you might want to go to GameQuitters.com. And just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Coming up to 1.35 on this Tuesday afternoon, mention the fact that Tuesday lacks a certain je ne sais quoi. You know, Monday stinks. We hate Mondays. We love Fridays. Wednesday's hump day. Thursday, let's go to the bar. Tuesday, Tuesday. Tuesday's Tuesday. Cheap movie night. Oh, yeah. You've said that before. Is it still? I think so. Is it really? I might have to investigate that a little more closely. Or you could go to the Kubota Center, 1055 Wilkes Avenue, 
at the presentation of our friends at Vita Health. Tonight, their feature presentation is our guest for the next half hour. It's Rosemary Pierce. She is Canada's first holistic pharmacist. Two questions for you, Rosemary, before we go any further. What is a holistic pharmacist and how on earth do you know that you were the first holistic (laughs) pharmacist in our great nation? So a holistic pharmacist is actually a term that helps to helps to understand that it's I have a pharmacy degree. I practice pharmacy for 25 years, but I've been doing actually holistic medicine, natural medicine for about 45. So it's that length of time that when we trace back uh, really makes me stand apart. I had a professor when I went to university. That was uh, 67 to 72 so I'm now going to be turning 68 very soon. Well, I never, ever would have guessed. Yeah, that's why you didn't think I could be the first one, right? That's exactly uh-huh. that's right. That's what I thought. <laughs> See, we're already connecting. It's only been four minutes. <laughs> so it was that professor who actually had a PhD in herbs. In pharmacy terms, it's called pharmacognosy. So it's actually a study still done in one university in the States, as far as I can see, pharmacy school in Illinois. And what it does is it teaches how the herbs, the active ingredients in herbs work. I had that professor for three years, and he taught vitamins and nutrition. So I had this background and this basis from the time I was 20 on. So I think that kind of qualifies when they look back at who's been doing holistic medicine. Yeah, so it's been a long love and passion of mine. And when I discovered that it could be possible to work with nutrition, vitamins and minerals instead of drugs, I was excited. And I remained excited my whole life about that. Now, you mentioned, was it 45 years with holistic med- medicine? And it yeah, was if a- I did the math right. Okay, and then, and then, but then you, your, your pharmacy degree you've had for how long? Well, I kept my pharmacy degree and dispensed for about 25 years. Okay. And then as I moved more into the health industry into the natural medicine, into formulation, education, and research, it really wasn't necessary for me to keep that um, up, up that license, and I would have had to continue practicing. And really, counting pills wasn't my thing anymore. That was not what I was going to do. So tell us how that power of compare and contrast, because you've seen both sides. Has Creativity. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How has that benefited uh, you and, and then, of course, the presentations and, and the work that you do? Yeah. Well, I tend to be more whole brain. To be a pharmacist, you really have to be very strongly academic. Did so, you say whole brain? Whole brain. Like, I'm creative. Mm-hmm. I just love creating things. And that's why formulation really works for me. And I love communicating complex ideas and making them into very simple, easy to understand. I can talk to pharmacists and, you know, sort of ham it up a bit more, but I prefer to talk in very common language and, and, uh, you know, bring things into a place where people can understand them. And hopefully I'll do that tonight with, um, with the talk that I'm giving. So is part of what you do or part of the idea behind what you do is to try to to steer people away, not entirely necessarily, but maybe a little bit from prescription medication? Not unless they're already on that trend themselves. I could help them and also maybe encourage them to go back to their doctor because a pharmacist is not a clinician usually unless they do extra studying. So really, it's it's education. I feel I can offer more than a pharmacist who's not studied natural medicine 
maybe give them some warnings. This talk tonight is about the medications that people are taking and how nutrients can be depleted by those and how to get around that, how to supplement, how to take things that could help a person who maybe, for example, is taking a, um, a high blood pressure medication. So if they're taking high blood pressure medication, and a lot of the minerals are lost, especially magnesium. Magnesium is, is extremely important for the health of your cardiovascular system. As a matter of fact, most people who have cardiovascular or diabetes are low in magnesium. And then they, their medications are um, interfering with that magnesium. So taking extra magnesium can be very helpful to them preventing, you know, uh, blood pressure going higher, um, possibly preventing arrhythmias, you know, heart palpitations. So it's valuable to know that a good multi and extra magnesium. Now, here's an interesting thing. Often people that are taking those type of medications are also on acid blockers, right? Those drugs that they take one pill a day, 24 hours, they don't produce very much stomach acid. Stomach acid's absolutely necessary to absorb magnesium from food or supplements. Why are they taking those blockers first and foremost, Rosemary? Well. Is that, is that to make the medication that they're taking more effective? No, it just so happens that um, the often we find, like when I talk to pharmacists who are dispensing, what they're doing is looking at the sort of the drug um, patterns and they will tell me that most, and most pharmacists would probably agree with this, that their patients, their, you know, regular customers are about 80% of them are on acid blockers. So there's some relationship between being ill and what's going on with your stomach acid. And it tends to be not so much, actually, the issue doesn't tend to be so much that they have too much stomach acid, but they have a reflux or they have an opening. And doctors are concerned that their very worst fear is that they um, irritate the esophageal tissue, the, you know, the, the tissue above right. their stomach where right. there's no protection. And then long-term issues would be potentially cancer. So that's the fear in the back of the mind that keep that keeps these drugs being prescribed, even though the condition may be not too much acid. It might be eating too much pina- uh, uh, tomato sauce, right? Uh, having orange juice with every meal. Coffee is very acidic. So all those things can be acidic. And so they're trying to control stomach acid. Unfortunately, that helps the body to lose or not even absorb many of the minerals. So this is a common Very issue common. that a lot of people have. Yeah. They have they have uh, stomach or acid right. reflux. They have indigestion, as yeah. a lot of people will call it. And so they take a regular sort yeah. of medication in yeah. order to control this. Yeah. But this has a negative. It's simple science, right? For every action, yeah. there's an equal, equal and opposite reaction. And one of the reactions of taking this on a regular basis is it is it limits the ability for the body to absorb things that it needs. And that's right. And then internally, what we find is that, that the body goes just slightly acidic. It doesn't have enough minerals to really balance the acids. 
And I'm going to talk about that and what people can do and um, how they can help themselves without interfering if they need to take these acid blockers. If they're... If their doctor says they want them to stay on it and they're going to stay on it, then how can they help themselves? Rosemary Pierce is Canada's first holistic pharmacist. She is speaking tonight at the Kubota Centre at 1055 Wilkes Avenue at 6.30 p.m. Courtesy of Vita Health. And we are going to continue our chat with Rosemary after your forecast. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB, and we are joined by Rosemary Pierce, who is described as Canada's first holistic pharmacist. She is with Prairie Naturals doing a presentation tonight at the Kubota Centre at 1055 Wilkes Avenue, courtesy of Vita Health. And there's a, a fact here on the sheet that was uh, that came sort of our, our infographic on you, and it says, fact, more Canadians than ever are taking prescription medications. Is that by itself a bad thing, do you think? Well, I don't like to call things bad, right or wrong. Um, and there are consequences of it. And the consequences that I'm focusing on in my talk tonight are the nutrient depletions for that. So if a person's taking medication and it's absolutely something that they need to take, then how can they help themselves by uh, bringing in the nutrients that are most likely being affected and depleted or maybe not even absorbed by that particular uh, medication, which can support their all-over health. So taking a medication um, is one thing, but adverse effects are another. Then are those adverse effects, can they be prevented? Because it's possible to prevent some of the, of the side effects by just getting the nutrients. So if you have an elderly person, a person who doesn't have a good diet, poor absorption on, you know, uh, on the, as we were talking before the break, they don't have adequate stomach acid. And then, so they're not getting nutrients from their food. And then you add a drug, you're compounding their nutrient depletion. And, and so those nutrients are absolutely necessary. A really high nutrient-rich diets, very, very important, using super green foods, adding in alkalizing minerals, which are usually lost, and a good multi, often vitamin Bs. Matter of fact, um, vitamin Bs tend, vitamin Bs and the minerals tend to be the two that we see um, almost every uh, drug, and there are about 400 different drugs that can deplete nutrients. We see those uh, being depleted, and one of them is folic acid. So folic acid's very important for for the health of our cardiovascular system. I'm just going to read this to you because listen to the different categories of drugs that can deplete folic acid. Ready for this, guys? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Oral contraceptives, antacids, antibiotics, anticonvulsant drugs, anti-diabetic drugs, anti-inflammatories, anti-ulcer, those acid blockers, and ASA or aspirin. So all of those drugs potentially could reduce the amount of folic acid. If you don't like your leafy greens and if you're not, you know, eating uh, foods that have folic acid, then best to take a multi. 
a multi that has a fairly good amount of folic acid in it. Now, when you say a multi, that's a jargon for some people. Uh, they might not realize <laughs> that you're talking about a, as a multivitamin. Multivitamin and mineral supplement, a good one. Now, a good multi is in a capsule, and you take more than one a day. You Just spread it out? Spread it out. Not your little tiny red compressed, you know, we used to call them paramets, but, you know, drug-based. I'm looking at a very good quality multi that has um, a green food base or has all of the nutrients in highly absorbable forms. They're usually capsules and um, they can be found in just about any health food store. Pharmacists have become frontline medical workers to a great extent. For a lot of people, that's the person in a white coat they see the most, right? And they they trust them. They do. They're a big part of the community. They've become... um, integral part of the caregiver uh, mode and and the healthcare worker. And in fact, they're getting increased responsibility. Mm -hmm. So these are good people to talk to, right? And to to ask for advice about the idea of, you know, this medication, what effect might it have on my absorption of certain minerals and vitamins and things that are good for me? Can you have these discussions with these pharmacists? If if you've got... Uh, a pharmacist that is is uh, consulting with you, yes, you can ask them. Um, they might have to go look it up. They probably don't have those that information as I do at the tip of their fingertips, and they can find it. There are studies that go back to the 60s uh, that are documented, scientific, double-blind studies that prove um, that certain nutrients are depleted, and they can do that through a number of different ways. They can look at a, a, a population, a study can look at a population and do blood samples. Those without taking, say, for example, if you're taking a cholesterol medication, you reduce the amount of, of coenzyme Q10. Now, of course, we know that the statin drugs, which is what I'm talking about, are given to, they're one of the largest amounts of prescription drugs that that uh, pharmacists would dispense. And they are just quickly, just once statin again. Statin drugs, they, they're all the ores like Mevacor and Zocor and Crestor. These particular medications, people know them as statins. So the statin drugs deplete specifically another fat-soluble antioxidant, very necessary for our energy and actually for the, for the contractions and running of our muscles, especially the heart muscle. So here's the drug statins that decrease the production in the body of coenzyme Q10 that you need for your heart. So it's very important for somebody who's taking a statin to also supplement with coenzyme Q10. And that particular combination, most pharmacists know about it. Does Do the doctor bring that up? Does the doctor bring that? Maybe not unless the person asks. The pharmacist may but maybe not unless they ask. So it is a good idea, I think, to ask. And there are other nutrients. Vitamin K2 is also now, we know, reduced by taking statin drugs. So that that's a very important nutrient to stop calcification in our arteries. That's critical. You become your own best advocate on these things and ask questions and not just of your doctor, not just your pharmacist, but get other advice as well. And people can get some great advice from you tonight. Kaboto Center, 1055 Wilkes Avenue at 6.30 p.m. 
Rosemary Pierce is here with us, and she's going to be there tonight. And again, tonight's seminar, Optimize Your Health While Taking Prescription Drugs. This is presented by Prairie Naturals and Vita Health. Rosemary, thank you so much for the visit today. Always uh, it was goes fast. Yeah, it was really nice to meet you. So thank you for that. And hopefully you'll meet a whole lot more people tonight. Again, 630 at the Kubota Center. 156 on 680 CJOB. The news is up next. Our friends from the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba, we are focused. We are determined to continue to have conversations surrounding mood disorder, surrounding mental illness and unwellness and uh, this afternoon we're visiting with Janelle DePizer. Her mom passed away last year. She was a patient at the Grace Hospital. You, I'm sure, heard her tragic story. Uh, She wandered away from the facility at the Grace Hospital and first of all, Janelle, condolences on the loss of your mom. I know that it uh, it's a difficult thing to go through. How are you doing with this? As best I think as anyone could uh, suspect at this point in time, it's uh, not an easy process to go to, but I'm just always looking at at the positive. And I think certainly a lot of the, the work that me and my family have been doing uh, since her passing is, has helped us kind of you know, process our thoughts and be able to do something constructive with all of this. Well, I commend you for doing that because uh, it'll be an incredible legacy. It is an incredible legacy that you're mm-hmm. creating on behalf of your mom and in your mom's name. And so maybe talk a little bit about, we don't want to dwell on what happened. If people want to learn more about what happened with your mom, the internet is uh, available and they can they can read her story. We're talking about moving forward as we like to do. We like to look for solutions. And what is it that you're, you're hoping to do for others that might be in the same situation that you were in just a l- little over a year ago? Yeah, so just yeah coming off of our experience and and my mom's mom my mom's experience and building on some of her interests as well we've been since uh, my mom's passing talking with the mood disorders association in manitoba and thinking about what could we do to help other people and um really looking at uh this age group and by this age group i mean individuals 50 plus my mom was 60 when she passed away and you know, while looking at uh, mental health programming in Manitoba, there's not a tremendous amount focused to that age grouping. So it was a definite opportunity for us to kind of put our minds together and think about what would be meaningful for people and building again on my mom's experience and, and interests and passions and making it a, a project that's that's coming from a place of, of pain, but making it into hope and, and healing for other people. So we really are um, have been working hard over the last number number of months and coming up with this type of program. It's, it's basically, we basically started from scratch and have been meeting with other organizations and talking to them about what would be uh, supported and appropriate in, in Winnipeg. So... There's been lots and lots going on since last summer. So can you tell us a little bit about then this new program that uh, you've been developing with the mood disorders? Uh, how will it help people? So basically, uh, the program is going to be t- called Turning Pages. 
And um, the concept of it is that uh, we'll be referral-based, um, likely self-referral and referral by um, psychiatry and healthcare professionals, and that it would be based in um, offering a support group environment to, to that age grouping, which, again, currently doesn't exist, and uh, also an educational component. So for... And we're still figuring, you know, sorting some of the details out. But say if we ran it for eight weeks, uh, there'd be one hour that would be focused to the supportive group environment. And then one hour would be focused on education. So there are lots of promising um, approaches that that we've we've looked at and that we're incorporating into this program that have shown to improve um symptoms of, of mental illness. So things like cognitive behavior therapy and mindfulness and um, exercise and, and giving back to others and all these kind of components, which again, my mom also is weaved into it as well. Um, we're trying to create uh, a multifaceted um, dynamic program that, that people could, you know, really get some really good supportive um, component to it, but also the education and being able to learn more about what they're going through and um, to try to build some new skills. Why has there not been, to your knowledge, this opportunity, this sort of support for, for lack of a better word, seniors with that are dealing with depression? And, and was your mom, not to harp on, on that, in any way, but was your mom diagnosed late in her life? Was this a situation where your mom maybe didn't get the opportunity to deal with what she was dealing with in, in her, her mental health situation? Um, I think for, for my mom, certainly she, um, was a very busy, productive, um, you know, super mom her whole life. And, um, so, I mean, it, it was, it was very, she was very um, active and uh, did not have major difficulties. And so when this, you know, situation happened and her illness came on, it was, it was a big surprise. Um, not to say that she didn't have difficulties, period, but they were certainly not to the extent of, of what happened when she, when it did come on. Um, but I think by... You know, her having a responsibility for her family and and all the the busyness that goes along with it, it, um, you know, that just kind of kept her busy more than anything else. But back to your first question, why is why hasn't there been a focus to this this age grouping before? Um, I don't know. I I think I I can't really say exactly why. Um. I think there there always tends to be more focus to um, youth and and adults, and we always want to be able to, you know, to be able to educate them before they grow up. Um, so I think we're just trying to catch up now, where we can address all of these people that are fifty plus in our lives, in which we all have um, of parents and aunts and uncles and 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 loved ones that we we feel like they need help as well. So I think we're just trying to to catch up and be at that point right now so that we can offer that support. So maybe maybe in 10, 20 years, we may not need this type of programming because we've been able to catch up at the, that younger years and that, that we're able to 
to offer that support. So hopefully that is the case. But right now, um, older adults, 50 plus, are just, you know, the same or, or might even have even more difficulties than, than some other age groupings. Well, and it's a timely uh, program to, to develop something that is geared at this age group because there are so many aging boomers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I, 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 I'm surprised to learn that there isn't something like this already in existence for Yeah, I mean, there's group. pockets of things, but there's, if you would ask somebody, is there a mental health program for 50 plus in Winnipeg? Just you know, like there wouldn't be, oh, yes, I know about this. There might be like pockets of things happening, but it might not be uh, tailored specifically to mental health or might not be offered in, in that kind of broader context. So that's why we're doing this. Tara Brutho Snyder is here. She's the executive director of the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba. And Tara, you were going to kind of sit on the sidelines for this one today, but I, I have to ask you, is this just a situation where it's the generational thing where there were so many holes in the system for so many years that we're seeing this with, with older individuals that maybe weren't diagnosed and we have an assumption perhaps that anybody who would have a mental illness would have already been diagnosed. Why do you think there's this hole in, in the system and the, a hole in terms of support? I think there's a big hole in the system right now, and it's due to a number of factors. First of all, when you get to be a baby boomer age, you've lived a lot of life, and the life experiences start to add up. And so some of your skill sets some of your supports, they may have changed or they may be gone. Women going through menopause, men turning to more substance use, all of those issues, uh, they can really come and collide uh, at age 50 plus. So what we're finding is um, it's an age group that isn't necessarily going to go forward and seek help when they do need help. And we're going to try and meet them and find out where they're at and maybe have to do things a little differently in order to offer turning pages because this is a group that isn't accessing the system and it is getting lost. It, the suicide rate for men at this age is as high as can be. You said that, that this age group might not seek help. Why is that? I think that uh, they've grown up sort of with the understanding uh, where we don't use the word stigma really anymore at mood disorders, but I think in this age group it still applies. Um, reluctance to talk about it, reluctance to say, you know, I'm not feeling well. What is out there for me? And so we're going to have to really almost take it to to the baby boom population and say, we're here for you. Janelle, your mom was in all likelihood, and I'm going to guess here, she was a career caregiver mm-hmm. amongst all the other things that she did, right? Yeah. And so admitting that you might not be strong enough to deal with all the things you're dealing with might be a sign of weakness because of the generation and, and when she grew up. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, she she grew up on a farm and, you know, just had a real worker bee type of lifestyle her whole life. And um, was just that that super mom to us. And so, you know, for her to kind of share that perceived weakness with us or real kind of experience and difficulty with us was was difficult for her, for sure. We should pause for a weather update and more conversation when we come back. 
Janelle DePater is with us, and her mom, Kathy Curtis, uh, passed away last year. We're talking about Turning Pages. This is an initiative from Janelle and her family to make mental health in older individuals and baby boomers a focus and an opportunity to create some systems, some support for those individuals right here in Manitoba through the help of our friends at the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba. We'll pause and return in just a minute. Janelle DePizer is in the studio today. We're talking about turning pages. This is a really a love affair, a work of love in honor of Janelle and her siblings, uh, mom, the late Kathy Curtis, who died last year. She was a patient at Grace Hospital. Uh, tragic end uh, to your mom's life, Janelle, but you're honoring her in uh, doing this work. And talk a little bit about how you're going to advance the work of turning pages. I know you're hoping and planning for a fundraiser, which is always a ton of work. Yeah, so as if we're not busy enough at uh, Mood Disorders collectively, but um, I wanted some a way to, to not only tr- uh, support uh, this program and the implementation of it, but to also to be able to have a fundraiser that would generate uh conversation and awareness in Winnipeg and and outside of Winnipeg as well. So I'm, and we're kind of, I'm always drawing on my mom and, and her interests and, and skills and whatnot. And she was a great baker and uh, came up with an idea of engaging uh, bakeries in Winnipeg to do something uh, during Mental Health Week, which is coming up May 1st to the 7th. And um, so we are thinking of, of, of partnering and, and doing um, signature baked goods for, for, for that week that would uh, commemorate mental health in some type of way. And uh, we would encourage the public to, to visit these bakeries and buy the baked goods and um, see what everybody has to offer. So we're, we're just kind of you know, building up steam with, with this. And um, we will share more information with you once once we have a Facebook group and Instagram page created and whatnot. But we think it's going to be really great and want to create a lot of uh, buzz about it in, in the city, certainly. And I guess for anybody listening right now, let's say uh, maybe their parents are sort of approaching this age group. Would you have any, I don't know if advice is the word, but uh, maybe... Maybe if someone listening is concerned that maybe they're not supporting their parents enough or something. I don't know. Like, do you have any sort of words of advice, I guess? Oh, man. It's it's a difficult process. But, um, I mean, a word of advice for somebody caring for somebody, first of all, is that you can only do so much. Um, by just being there to to be supportive and to listen and... You know, to really just be that that person of support is probably the most important. Um, I mean, you could have a whole list of resources available out there, but I think what people need most is is somebody willing to to just hear and listen. And I and it's really important for that those people to know what their limitations are. So just stick with it and um, just be there for them. What's on your necklace there, Janelle? Oh, you know, <laughs> it's an angel wing. <laughs> I noticed you holding that. 
yeah. when you were talking just okay. now. And I, I Maybe have a subconscious a, thing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I know it because I have a necklace that I wear for my mom. It used to have a, mm-hmm. a, an etched uh, engraved picture of me and my mom, uh, but that has faded away over time. But I still wear the necklace. Yeah. And I notice you touching that angel <laughs> wing there. Yeah. And it, it's it's something else to, yeah. to have your mom with you yeah. uh, on this journey. And I imagine mm-hmm. you feel as though she is. She always is. I mean, I would never have this type of, you know, busy lives and energy to be able to to do all of this. You know, this is volunteer work. So, um, you know, she's a constant source of inspiration and and energy to 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 get this going. At the same time, I know she'd be telling me to take breaks and look after myself, but I know she's constantly giving me um, inspiration and and um, signs along the way of, of how to overcome challenges, but but how to address certain certain issues. Well, you and your siblings are um, doing a wonderful job honoring her, and I can only guess she'd be extremely proud and mm-hmm. all those other things at the same time. For sure. Thanks Thank for you. sharing this with us. Thanks for having me. Janelle DePizer is, again, working with the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba to begin a program called Turning Pages, which is for seniors sort of going through transition. And thank you so much for joining us, Janelle. And thanks to Tara Brousseau-Snyder, who is here, the Executive Director of the Mood Disorders Association. More video game music. Clearly, I played video games from one specific time. It was all, it's always Nintendo music. I always fall back to the, the Nintendo Entertainment System. I was going to say the NES, right? That's right. That was the gray box with the controller about, what, about four inches by one inch. Yeah, like the, the size of a box of Smarties. And, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, box of Smarties. Yeah, close enough, I guess. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. I can remember the first video game I saw would have been March of 1976 in Anaheim, California, in the lobby of our hotel. It was Pong. It was the original Pong. Okay. And it seemed like the coolest thing ever invented because I'd been playing pinball, you know, when I was a little kid. I was still only seven, I guess, at the time. And then when Lloyd's Electronics introduced this home version of Pong, it was all the rage. And it was essentially hockey, soccer, tennis, squash, but the premise was the same. (laughs) You had this one-inch little guy that you moved up and down. You couldn't move him forward or back, just up and down because you had a paddle. You moved him up like a light switch, down like a light switch, and then the ball would bounce. You could Maybe if you did it fast, you could maybe make the ball move a little bit quicker. (laughs) But, man, that kept us occupied for hours. It was... You know, in retrospect, the lamest thing ever invented, but it was the first and you had to start somewhere. But that was my introduction to video games and I never really got good at them anyway. Well, and maybe it's not necessarily a bad thing. It may not be a bad thing because uh, as we learned uh, earlier today, and I think we've all had a belief or a knowledge that video games are addictive, but to the point that Cam Adair shared with us today, uh, that was probably the most gripping story I'd ever heard in terms of what Cam did in order to play video games and the lies that he told his parents in order to make sure that he could play video games extraordinary. Cam Adair is a 28-year-old Calgary native. He now lives in San Diego. 
He has formed a community as a website called GameQuitters.com, and we want to replay a portion of our conversation that we had with Cam earlier today, just sort of a recap of what we discussed. You know, I, I think the one that always speaks to me is just pretending to have jobs. Uh, that's the one looking back that I'm always like, wow, that really is pretty intense. Uh, you know, so my dad used to drop me off at a restaurant where he thought I had a job. And as soon as he drove off, I'd walk across the street, catch the bus back home, and I would sneak into my window and go to sleep. And, you know, my mom was getting ready for work, so that's why I had to sneak in through my window. But that's the one that really sticks to me is, you know, when I'm going to the extent of pretending to have jobs and deceiving my family, you know, that's probably a problem. So at first, you know, I'm a fairly normal Canadian kid. I went to school, I played hockey, and then I'd go home and play video games. And at first, it was it was all good. It was kind of a way for me to bond with, you know, friends and bond with my cousin especially. But over the course of time, especially in the eighth grade when I began to experience a lot of bullying, that's when things went from just being something normal to being an escape. And the escape ended up, you know, I actually dropped out of high school never graduated. And while all my friends were going off to college, I was at home living in my parents' basement playing video games up to 16 hours a day. Now, I was also super depressed. And as much as gaming allowed me to escape from dealing with my depression, it didn't actually fix it. So I got to a point where I wrote a suicide note. And that's the night when I really started to realize I need to make a change. You know, a common thing you'll hear from parents is those aren't your real friends. You know, you're playing with friends online, but those aren't your real friends, but they are your real friends. And you know, one of the, the difficulties that people in my community have when they go to quit are kind of three main issues. The first is, what else will I do with my time? They actually don't even know what else they'll do with their time other than gaming. The second is, I'm going to lose all my friends. And for someone of any age, losing your friends is a very difficult experience. And the third is, you know, moving on from something incredibly meaningful to them. It's creating a void and they feel nostalgic. You know, gaming might have been something they've done since they were two, three, four, five years old. And they might be 30 years old today, and gaming is the central thing they've done throughout their whole life. Now, Cam and Dare, this conversation that we had with Cam, who formed Game Quitters, the website GameQuitters.com, it's something that grabbed Greg's attention. I'm glad it did, because he certainly has my attention now. This is a young man who used to, he dropped out of school, he didn't, uh, used to lie to his parents, tell them that he actually had a job, and then he would get his dad to drive him to said job and as soon as he got dropped off he'd hop a bus and go back home and sleep because he had been up playing video games all night this is a man who realized i can't play video games anymore he's not declaring war on video games he's just saying his relationship with video games was unhealthy and he has discovered there are tens of thousands of people out there who are just like him and we wanted to bring it to your attention because maybe you have gone through something like this or maybe your kids are potentially going through it. The website is gamequitters.com. He has all sorts of advice on things that you can do to replace the part of your life that is currently filled by video games. Brett, one of the revelations in our discussion with Cam was the this fact that this is a social exercise. This is an addiction that involves other people. Mm-hmm. It's a community that's created virtually through these video games. When I was younger and when you were younger, we mentioned that these were things that we did by ourselves or maybe with a sibling or a friend. And yeah, could you stay up late doing it? Absolutely you could. Could you waste hour upon hour? Yes, you could. But 
typically you were with one other, maybe a couple of other people. Mm-hmm. But Cam pointed out that the technology, the way it is, you're connected, you've got headsets, so you're talking to people, whether they're down the street or across the world, and you're playing these games that never end. Yeah. Donkey Kong had a beginning and a finish. Yeah, I finished the game, mm-hmm. right? I beat the game. Some of these games do not have an end. Yeah, these they, uh, these they, massive they, multiplayer role-playing games. Right, they, they, they continue into perpetuity. There is no end to these games. And you said something that kind of startled me with regard to if this technology had exist when you were younger, fill in the blank. I think I may have had a similar addiction to Cam. I mean, it's, you know, I've made no secret about talking about my addiction to smoking and and the ongoing uh, battle against that. Uh, what a, day am I up to now? 129, I think? And uh, quitting smoking. So I sort of recognize that I am, I get addicted to things very quickly. I used to play a lot of video games. Like I said, I had an NES, I had a, a SNES, the Super Nintendo, and then I had a Nintendo 64. And Donkey Kong 64 is probably the last game that I played a lot. It was uh, I would play it with all in every moment of my free time I would play it. I would think about it when I wasn't playing it, and I would lose sleep because I was staying up way too late playing this dumb game. It's a great game, but I played it a little too much. And it was just me. So if I had this access to to play with people from around the world, I kind of wonder how would I have reacted to that? And especially for Cam, this is a guy who was dealing with depression issues. He was dealing with bullying. So it was easy for him to retreat into this world where he has friends. He might not have friends for in him. The, yeah, he might not have not have friends in the quote unquote real world, mm-hmm. but in this virtual world, he's talking to real people. So I can completely understand why it became easy for him to get addicted to these games. We'd like your phone calls. Have you been down this road? Have you seen it in your kids? Has it changed their personality at times when you tell them that they have to get off the game console, they have to get off the computer or the iPad, and they tell you, just need a few more minutes, I'm just about done. No, you're not done, because these games are never ending. 780-6868. It's 247, and again, if you have thoughts on the video games and the video game addictions, 204-780-6868. Would love to hear your feedback. Perhaps you went through something like this, or maybe your kids are going through something like this. 204-780-6868 is the number to call or text. It's 247. Your forecast is up next. Promised you'll look at the conditions outside and highways, some highway closures to report to you, Mr. McGarry. Well, the, the major one is Highway 1 from Portage La Prairie to Carberry. That is now closed due to the poor conditions. Highway 1 had previously already been closed from Portage La Prairie to the Saskatchewan border. Now it's also closed uh, uh, Portage La Prairie to Carberry. And you'll have to forgive, Greg, you'll have to forgive my ignorance here. Would Would that... Would Carberry not be in between Portage and Saskatchewan? That's not an area that, or is, does Carberry come first? 
Carberry is uh, between Brandon and Portage La Prairie. Okay. All right. Yeah. For, sorry. I don't get out to, to Westman a okay. whole lot. That's all right. Uh, so I sometimes I just get confused as to which comes first. But we're getting a lot of reports from our listeners via text. We very much appreciate the feedback. Highway 16 has zero visibility. Uh, Southeast Manitoba, whiteout on Highway 12 from Steinbach to the 302 and further, most probably all the way to Sprague. Uh, this texture suggests to that you put your four-ways on if you're on the highway. Uh, we also had a highway closure on the northbound lanes of Highway 9, so that's Main Street in Winnipeg, from River Glen Crescent to Highway to the perimeter are closed. So northbound Highway 9 from River Glen Crescent to the perimeter are now closed. This is due to a road hazard in the area. So that's a odd vocabulary. I'm not entirely sure what that means, if that's just conditions or if there's been a crash or something. Right. So. Southwest Manitoba as well, Highway 2 from St. Claude uh, all the way into the deep southwestern Manitoba uh, where Highway 2 ends at Highway 21 is closed, Highway 3 is closed, Highway 34 is closed, uh, Highway 23 is closed essentially all the way east, to, or pardon me, west to Highway 10 from due south of Portage La Prairie. And uh, once again, getting notices on text at 7806868 of uh, whiteout conditions between Ilda Shane and Niverville on Highway 59 south, as well as Highway 75 south. We were uh, just very quickly, we'll continue our chat here about video games. We were talking to Cam Adair. This is a Calgary native, 28 year old man who now lives in San Diego. And he formed something called Game Quitters. The website is gamequitters.com. This is a guy who basically let video games take over his life. And he learned, he decided that he needed to break his addiction. And in doing so, he formed this community that is now. Um, tens of thousands of members are part of Game Quitters. And just wanted to quickly play this clip here that sort of, I think, can sum up why some of us who play video games can get addicted to them. I recommend taking a 90-day detox. Now, this has to do with what research shows around gaming and the brain. So gaming is hyper-stimulating, far more stimulating than what real life is. That's much more immersive than real life. And because of that, your brain gets used to that level of stimulation which means that anything that's not reaching that level of stimulation, you find boring. And so if you're out there and you feel like, well, I game because everything else in life is boring, then that could be part of what's going on. Maybe you don't play video games, but maybe you play with your smartphone all mm -hmm, the time. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a way that we can relate. If you don't play games, but maybe you play with your phone. I, I have to keep my phone in another room when I'm at home. I think uh, there are a lot of us that fall under that category, Brett, that we are way too dependent on these uh, personal devices, always looking at them. We might not be playing games on them, but we're interacting, as Cam was mentioning, in a different community, online. It's a virtual community. We're speaking to our friends and our family that aren't in the room while our friends and family are in the room uh, we're having these virtual slash text messages with other people that uh, aren't physically uh, in our lives at the moment. And I think we're all guilty of that to a certain extent. We got a text here. I'm at home playing video games and listening to CJOB. 
Well, that's good to hear. Well done. Good for you. Um, so I guess the, one of the main reasons why we wanted to bring this conversation to you today with Cam is perhaps, you know, maybe you've got kids who play a lot of video games and you, and you you are fighting with them to stop playing the games. Well, maybe there's something a little bit more going on there. So we just wanted to bring some attention to the fact that sometimes there is an addiction to these games. And uh, especially now, the games are so, so realistic I don't want to sound like an old fuddy-duddy who'd, who's out of touch. I, I mean, I, I haven't played video games regularly for 20 years probably. So when I do watch, see the new games, they just blow me away. They are mind-blowing without question. And uh, Brett, sorry we're going back and forth here from our conversation to what's going on, uh, going on out in the highways. We just got a text, multi-vehicle accident, southbound. 59, just north of Ildeshane. That may be causing some delays. Hard to see accident due to the whiteout conditions, vehicles and pedestrians on the roadway and shoulders. That's north of Ildeshane on southbound Highway 59. Global News up next on 680 CJOB. We are dedicated to telling and sharing stories. And when this story came across our desk, Brett, we had really no choice but to help tell it. And we have a guest in studio. His name is Brian McInnes. He is the great-grandson of Francis Pegamagabo. Fantastic. I, did I, did I get it? You got it. Very <laughs> nice, Brad. Get applause for that, Brad. <laughs> Brian is uh, traveling from Duluth. He's here in Winnipeg to launch his book, about Francis. It's called Sounding Thunder, the stories of Francis Pegamagabo. And uh, you're doing a book signing tonight, yes? That's right, yes, at the Rand McNally Atrium this evening at 7 o'clock. So who is Francis Pegamagabo? Who is Francis Pegamagabo? Great question. Um, the short answer I would give on that is Francis is Canada's most decorated Indigenous soldier for bravery of all time. Um, he is also the most prolific sniper in North American military history of all time. So those are the two short answers that I would give about him. But the book, it, well, it does explore some of those identity and roles that he played in our, in our history, you know, both in Canada and indeed North America. But the book, I think, explores the other identities that he had as a community leader, as a community chief, uh, even as a national chief, one of the first ones in Canadian history. So that's um, a little bit more of who he is and what he's done. Why do you think it's important, Brian, to share Francis's story and as his great-grandson? Uh, obviously, you might be a little bit biased in this, but in terms of the role that it can play for the, the larger community in sharing these stories, what, what, what value does his story have? Yeah, Francis's story, I mean, in the present time, it's pretty important, especially in an age of reconciliation when we're looking to the past and looking to make things right so we can move forward in a better way. Stories like Francis's are extremely important. And, and indeed, to that very point, that was one of the things about this book that I think and in, in the identity and life of my great-grandfather that interested me was so few people knew who he was or what his contributions had been. So the opportunity to sit down you know, write some of his stories out and be able to share those with the broader community and Canadian public, to me was this act of being able to think about the life of someone who had made these extraordinary contributions to our country and our country's freedom, um, but also endured some pretty significant challenges and struggles in his life and and somehow looking at how we can resolve those and move forward in a better way. I think that story continues into the present. 
So he lived from 1889 to 1952. Mm-hmm. He enlisted at the onset of the First World War. And the most prolific sniper in North American history. Indeed. How does one determine that, that they, they are, this person is, in fact, the most prolific sniper? One of the things, um, I'll just kind of, to your, your first point there of, you know, his... I guess, initial interest in the war and what brought him overseas, you know, it was such a different a time period in Canadian history. And one of the things that I found fascinating in doing the research for the book was realizing that, you know, Francis was really on one of the, the first boats to go overseas and join the front lines of soldiers. But what was interesting about that was, you know, when you look at the military records and you see letter exchanges between, you know, fairly high-ranking military personnel, you read about how Aboriginal people, Native peoples, First Nations peoples, were actually not desired recruits for the war. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that there was some fear that if other nations, other countries, enemy countries realized that Canada was using Indians, that somehow their troops, their battalions would be seen as less And the fear was, quote, end quote, they may result in less than civil or less than human forms of warfare. So there was this fear that indigenous soldiers might devalue the the Canadian battalion in the eyes of enemy troops. So Canadian Aboriginal soldiers were, were not even initially desired to go overseas and fight for Canada. But Francis, um, and amazing, you know, for a guy with a last name like Pegamagabo, he managed to get himself on one of those boats and found himself on one of those front lines where he stayed for four years. And uh, yep. No, go, go ahead, Brian. I, I just mm-hmm. wanted to interject just this idea in popular culture. We've seen the stories of the Tuskegee Airmen. We've seen wind talkers starring Winnipeg's own Adam Beach and right. how, and how uh, you know, different uh, indigenous languages were used as code in World War II. Mm-hmm. But in World War I, here's an individual like Francis wants to fight on behalf of his country and his own country is kind of saying, yeah, we're not even sure we want you to do that. (laughs) What an incredible testament to his fortitude to stand up and be counted and to be a part of the war effort. Uh, What an incredible part of that story. Great. No, thank you. And, and indeed it is. Um, and to the, the the one, you know, Brett, I think you had asked me, well, how, how do we measure, how do we know he would be That's the right. most prolific sniper in North American military history? You know, really what we have are the reports made during the war. One thing about World War One in particular was that record keeping was not quite what it is at the present. And one of the things that I think in uh, after World War One that often happened was, you know, snipers would work in pairs. So there was, if only, someone to count, um, someone to validate the efforts of the day. For Francis, uh, while there was some work that he did with uh, a partner, and there's a story in that about when he first went out with a partner, what happened to his partner completely changed his thoughts on working with someone else. Uh, His partner Mm. was killed. (laughs) So that was something which changed forever his thought on the risk factor he put on someone else. So he worked primarily alone. But he did, you know, throughout the war, uh, keep his own personal records as to his success. Those things were reported. Um, But again, the log history is not what it is at the present, but that was the number that was reported to and by Indian Affairs even after the war. We have to pause our conversation with Brian McKinnis. He is the author of a book called Sounding Thunder, the stories of Francis Pegamagabo. He is Canada's most decorated Indigenous soldier, and there is a book signing tonight at McNally Robinson. More on this book with Brian after Traffic and Weather Together 
up next. The book is Sounding Thunder, the stories of Francis Pegamagabo. We have Francis Pegamagabo's great-grandson, Brian McInnes, joining us in studio. You can meet him face-to-face tonight at McNally Robinson at 7 o'clock or tomorrow at the Tier Building on the University of Manitoba campus. That's happening at 12.30. And Brian, uh, we are getting text messages from an individual who's a big fan of your great-grandfather's just watched a documentary on him. It's available on YouTube, and he tells us, and you can confirm, that your great-grandfather's confirmed kills totaled 378. Mm -hmm. That is the reported number that we have seen in documentation. That is something else. Uh, The most uh, decorated member of uh, the First First Nation soldier of World War One, yes, and also the uh, the the record holder for confirmed kills by a sniper. And so, talk about different reactions you've received over the years when people have realized who your great grandfather is. It's it's sure varied. I mean, amongst uh, members of the Indigenous community, the Aboriginal community. I think there is still a pretty good broad understanding of who he was and why his contributions are significant. But when I've shared that with folks who maybe not, maybe not be uh, as much in the know of his history or who he was, and when they just hear that simple fact that he was the most prolific sniper in North American military history and even see that number, uh, that's caused different reactions. In fact, I think um, one that I heard just before I began writing the book was, you know, uh, they kind of looked at that number online, looked at me, and just made the comment, "How could you? How could you come from such a monster? How could you have a connection to him in any way? You just seem like such a a calm, nice person." And and I think I was a little taken aback by that because a I didn't know how to react, but b it also was so antithetical to everything I'd ever heard about him as actually a very gentle, a very kind, a very caring father and community member who you know, believed very, very much in the place of the First Nations people in Canada and dedicated his life after the war to making that be a reality. So it was such a, such a difference. But one thing, as you, you mentioned that, um, it made me think about those, those two very things, that there's this number of reported kills, but... To our knowledge, he only ever reported that number once, and that was to a Sudbury newspaper after the war, and he never talked about that again. But the things that he did talk about were the medals that he did have. Uh, The fact that he had those medals for bravery, those were the things he valued, and those were the things that he was proud of. But he never talked again, to our knowledge, of how many people he killed or why he did that. So it was very clear that that was the part of of saving life, of valuing life that was important to him. Brian McInnes is the author of Sounding Thunder, the stories of Francis Pegamagabo. Book signing tonight at McNally Robinson at 7 o'clock. And we're going to continue our conversation with Brian after traffic, weather, and sports. All up next. Before we forget, we have stuff to give away. And Jeff Forche has already blocked the lines. Thank you, Jeff. We have four tickets to the Winnipeg Golf Expo this weekend, Friday to Sunday, March 10th to the 12th at RBC Convention Center. And we want to make sure some golfers get their hands on this. So here's a golf question. What is the unofficial fifth major in golf? 204-780-6868. What is the unofficial fifth major in golf? 204-780-6868.
Brian McInnes is in studio with us. He is the author of Sounding Thunder, the stories of Francis Pegamagabo. And Francis Pegamagabo is a World War I, First World War hero, one of the greatest, the greatest, in fact, sniper in the history of North American uh, military. And I got to tell you, I have to ask you this question, Brian. Why stories of Francis Pegamagabo as opposed to story of Francis Pegamagabo? Great question. Yeah, these stories, uh, when I called the book Sounding Thunder, the stories of Francis Pegamagabo, it was just namely to honor the stories that Francis, individual stories such as legends or family stories, war stories, um, or other parts uh, of his life that he had shared with his children and that they had shared with me back in the early 90s. So one very neat part about the book is that it actually features 11 stories in the original Ojibwe text that have been translated into English uh, that kind of, I think, precede each of the chapters in the book. So uh, indeed, it's stories because they have his stories as his children told them to me back in the 90s. So that's um, the main reason I called it stories and also the fact that just his story is so much bigger. But um, the stories in the book, they're they're pretty fascinating. They're, there's uh, traditional Ojibwe legends, there's land stories, there's family stories, community stories, um, even a war story that was meant to address the the rumor about him in World War One, told often by the men in his battalion of how he seemed to be able to turn invisible at will. And that was actually what they said allowed him to survive four years on the front lines of that war. So there's a story in the book that actually addresses directly that question. Um, but myself, you know, my favorite story actually is a love story, uh, the story of how he met and courted his wife after the war. And to me, that is the most poignant, most meaningful, and most profound of all the stories in the entire book. Well, and probably a little bit more meaningful considering it's your great-grandfather and your great-grandmother, an important mm-hmm. part of your family history. So the as you were putting this book together, you mentioned that uh, some of the stories were told to you in the 90s. So is that when the, the seed was planted to write this book or... Or how did that come about? Oh, ex- exactly. Now, the, in the 90s, I was doing a lot of research just on general community history. Uh, so I was, and I was interested in, in our old um, stories of our, our community and our land. So the Perry Island, Wasoxing First Nation in Ontario. But, you know, I, as I was, as I refound these tapes about three or four years ago, and this is back to tape cassette. So actually I had to find a tape player to play all these old tape cassettes. But as I was listening to them, I realized, wow, they talked a lot about their father, meaning my great uncle and my great aunt. And, and as I was listening to these stories, I thought there is, there is something in here that I have to work with. And there's a story that they want me to tell about their father. So that was where this book uh, essentially came out of was, you know, finding a box of old tape cassettes that I made in the 90s and created this book from. Now, the word hero can be overused in our society. We we bandy it about in particular as, as it pertains to sports figures and athletes who have done incredible things. Uh, I would, without reservation or hesitation, call your great-grandfather a hero. Are you comfortable with that? I, I think I am. And I think in the regard that, you know, he so selflessly did all these things for, you know, not only his own people and his own community, but he really did aspire to 
make this lasting and enduring place for First Nations people in the bigger fabric of Canadian life. And, you know, all this, think back to this time period when he lived. You know, this, he died in 52, um, actually died of chlorine gas poisoning in his lungs. That's actually what killed him in the end. But he died, uh, for a gentleman who, who worked his entire life really for Canada, he died before First Nations people were allowed to be Canadian citizens. So in that regard, as a, as a Canadian hero... He wouldn't authentically be Canadian, but he was still a hero. And I think to Canada, it would be good of us to recognize him that, that way in the present. Your life right now is working on the proliferation and the preservation of the Ojibwe language. These stories are critical and sharing stories like your great grandfather's keep the language alive. Fair to say? Fair to say. And I think at this time, especially as Canada's reevaluating its relationship with indigenous people and in particular indigenous languages uh, are indigenous languages equivalent to English and French in terms of official languages. That's a very active discourse right now in Canada. And if we move to that place where we can finally recognize these languages as being um, as quintessentially Canadian as anything else that was brought here uh, a number of a few hundred years ago, then I think works like Sounding Thunder will be increasingly important in which those languages have, I guess, first place on the docket in terms of the stories that we tell in here. You can get your hands on the book tonight at McNally Robinson at 7 o'clock. Brian McKinnis is our guest and the author of Sounding Thunder, the stories of Francis Pega Magabo, once again, Canada's most decorated Indigenous soldier, most prolific sniper in North American history. The book signing tonight, 7 p.m., McNally Robinson. And there's another event tomorrow at 12.30 at the Tier Building at the University of Manitoba. Brian McKinnis, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Miigwech. 345 on 680 CJOB. Traffic and weather together next. Just ahead of traffic and weather, want to quickly congratulate Ross McDuff, who has won four tickets to the Winnipeg Golf Expo for this weekend at the Convention Center because Ross was able to answer the question, what is the unofficial fifth major in golf? It is the Players' Championship at TPC Sawgrass in Florida. This year's, by the way, is happening May 9th to the 14th. Defending champion Jason Day. Richard Cluche, Julie Buckingham in studio with us now, and we're used to the weather becoming the top story in the news, such as the case today, fair to say? Very fair. In fact, uh, we know about the stranded drivers, but there's some other people that have been left a little bit in the lurch that you may not think of. Yeah, they're stranded at the Greyhound bus depot at the airport. Uh, spoke with uh, one individual, and you'll hear it just after the 4 o'clock news, who's en route to British Columbia from Sudbury. Roads are closed. And, you know, asking the question, well, do you expect them to put you up in a hotel? And no, but he's saying at least give us some mats because we're sleeping on the floor right now. And what they're doing is going to uh, James Richardson International Airport, walking across and sleeping on the couches there as opposed to the floor of the, the bus depot. And there's also some folks with um, with disabilities uh, on that bus. And um, the latest from Manitoba Highways is, Westman, you are shut down at least until tomorrow. We just spoke with uh, Manitoba Highways in Brandon. They can't even get the plows on the road. It's not going to happen tonight. It's not going to happen until uh, conditions improve until later tomorrow. We're going to talk to somebody um, with a 680 CJOB connection a little bit later on, who um, has made ample use of their snowmobile in the last 24 hours. 
We'll also have the story. We we brought you a little kicker, and often we do those stories to lighten things up. About, oh, I love this story. About Percy the cat. And so I found this story, and I put it in the news, and I read about Percy the cat who was lived in his, his master's, I guess, uh, his owner's semi-truck. And the cat jumps out of the window. Truck driver's looking everywhere for the cat. Can't find the cat. But, you know, truckers, they got to leave when they got to leave. He gets to his destination 400 miles away, sees this cat that he thinks is a stray, realizes it's his cat, and it's been hanging on to the undercarriage of his truck for 400 miles. That's dedication. Read the story on the air about this Minnesota trucker. Turns out Shanalee Vidal knows the trucker. Of course. <laughs> and uh, he's going to join us to talk about Percy the cat and Percy's perseverance. <laughs> You were just illiter- waiting for that one, actually, weren't you? that just happened. Wow, you're a walking alliteration, aren't <laughs> yep, you? That just happened, for real. Well, uh, anything else that we should be staying tuned for? I know there we're are number lots two. of things. What? We're number two. Well, yeah, of course. We are number two and proud of it, and we'll find out who we're behind and who we're way who's, ahead who's of. Who's this we? Who's this collective Speaking we? Speaking of number two, I got to go. Who, oh, oh, no, we didn't. So dig a lass. That's uh, what I would say to that. Thanks, uh, Richard. The whole Canada. All of Canada. Oh, Canada. Canada. The collective we. The collective we. Gotcha. Gotcha. That, well, that's a good teaser, though. Thank you. Yeah. Thank I, you. Okay. Until he took it down that road. Yeah. yeah had, to, had to do it. Yeah. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's just, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, let's just leave it there. Okay. Have that we is... got anything else we've got to take care of, or we just have to say goodbye? Well, we while we have a minute here, a couple of minutes left. We'll just uh, we were talking about video games. We didn't really get a chance to refer to these. Uh, we got a, a series of good text messages from people who actually have some experience in this. And one of them was, I used to play uh, games for over seven hours a day. We we're talking about video game addictions, and so seven hours a day over two hundred days played time. And I had no life. I'm a different person because of it. Now I trade stock. And after six years of school and work experience, I still want to become an air traffic controller. And this person says it was because I just never had enough stimulation. So video games led to an addiction because not enough stimulation in regular life. Seven hours a day. Uh, but now uh, they've, this person has been able to escape it. And again, when we were talking about video game addiction, we weren't saying video games are bad. Video games are the devil. No. Just that if you or someone you know is hooked on video games, there's a, there are, there's a community, GameQuitters.com, that can help you. Camadera suggests that 10% of all gamers uh, may be addicted. I, I'm going to guess that number is actually higher. Only a guess on my part, just as I think the percentage of those of us that have handheld devices, have phones, cell phones, uh, Apple, iPhones, whatever it may be, are addicted to them. I bet you it's way more than uh, 10%. It's 354. That, that, means, means, that means it's time to say goodbye. Jeff Forte, Master Control, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Greg Mackling, and thank you for listening to Mackling and McGarry. The news is up next on 680 CJOB.